Hello and welcome to another episode of the Investors Chronicle Extraction podcast in which we speak to executives of companies operating in the natural resources sector. I'm Alex Newman, a writer at the Investors Chronicle, and today I'm joined by Jim Johnson, Chief Executive of FTSE 250 Constituent Hunting, the London-listed oil services company with perhaps the largest proportional exposure to the once again booming upstream US shale industry. So higher prices have been good for unconventional producers, and that's been good news too for hunting. Since last September, when Mr Johnson took the reins at the company, the oil price has increased more than 50% and hunting shares have doubled. Jim, thank you very much for coming to talk to us today. Thanks for having me, Alex. I suppose that's kind of the start to your role you could have only dreamed about, or... Have you learned to ignore the the spikes in the industry? Is such a rise in such a short time a sign for concern instinctively for uh, an oil services uh, CEO? Well, after 30 years, I've lived through my share of the ups and downs in the business. So I try not to be too focused on the day-to-day movements. The the, the positive thing for hunting and for our industry is that long-term energy has a really bright future, especially when it comes to oil and gas, and our company is well-placed to benefit from that. Excellent. So let's just take a step back i mean can i just get you to introduce briefly hunting's products its clients and, and where your geographical focuses sure. are specifically well hunt, hunting is a very fortunate we have a very that we have a very broad portfolio of products we are benefiting not only from the onshore shell plays but we also have great exposure to the offshore markets our largest market right now is in North America, and the primary driver of our activity there is our Titan division, which specializes in perforating guns and explosives and perforating systems and instrumentation for the fracking uh, segment of the industry. That business is very, very strong right now, You know, driven by what you're reading in the Permian Basin and the activity there. The other segments of our business, we're very focused in the OCTG business, which is the tubing and casing used in oil and gas wells. We have that that business internationally with offices in Canada. We have business and manufacturing in Southeast Asia, offices in the Middle East, and also we we sell premium connections in the U.S. So we touch the OCTG business in a number of places globally, and that's really managed by the fact that the OCTG being related to steel is a very highly political business. So with things like duties going into effect in the U.S. or other markets, you, you have to have a broad base and a broad supply base in order to play there, which we do. Two other key segments for us are advanced manufacturing group. We're one of the few companies in the world that make advanced printed circuit boards for downhole tools. And the the advantage of our processes is that it allows these tools to perform under a very harsh and extreme conditions. We call it shake and bake because of the high temperatures and all of the the shock that goes through these tools. So we manufacture those, and then we actually make the tools for people like the big service players, the Halliburtons, the bakers of the world. And then lastly, we're in the well intervention business, which is also global. So the good thing is we touch a lot of places. Fortunately, right now, the shell plays are very strong for us, but we also have have a portfolio that benefits when and when the deep water plays and the offshore comes back. You touched on a couple of your your services clients there. Right. I mean, can can we count as well? You know, the you know the big names, the sort of super majors, the big unconventional players in the US as as, as your clients as well. We literally have a thousand clients right. out there. 
and we touch so many different parts of the business that we sell to the people like the Chevrons and the Exxons and the Anadarkos, the Apaches, as well as the Halliburtons and the Schlumbergers and the Bakers. So it's service companies, it's oil companies, it's national oil companies. Basically, anybody involved in putting a hole in the ground can be a client of ours. Okay. We spoke around three months ago and your four-year result. You told me that we've had Shale 1.0, which was maximizing the science. Mm -hmm. They're now figuring out how to do it at a continually lower price. One, does that remain the case? And two, what did it take for Shell 2.0 to, to come about? Was it, was it the industry saying to itself, we need to start making money at some point? I think it was a giant science project for a number of years. When you look back at the whole shell play, if you go back 15 years ago, nobody thought any of this was possible. It really wasn't until George Mitchell came up with the Barnett play up around Dallas that, that the world woke up to the fact that there's this massive resource there that can be cracked to deliver hydrocarbons. So for a while, even though they they started doing it, they really never optimized it. The, the downturn accelerated that. It accelerated the people. It accelerated the need to be more prudent in the spending of money, and, and it evolved into a, once the science was done, turning this into a manufacturing operation. And I think that's the key with Shell 2.0 today. It's logistics. It's almost like needing an Amazon-type approach in order to get the, these wells drilled and online. So one of the, the big drivers for you is, is going to be the number of, of rigs that are active. How much is part of that rationalization about doing more with fewer fewer wells for your clients or is it a case of drilling more wells but making each of them more efficient and lower cost thereby providing you a hunting with uh, with greater upside I, I think that today we basically have a as example in the u.s we have a thousand and fifty rigs running in the u.s reading from reports i've heard from oil company people that that rig count today is doing the same as what 1350 rigs were doing three years ago right. so the rigs are more efficient there's new generations of equipment out there that's quicker faster better in all segments so in the drilling segment, on the completion segment. And so right now, you know, drilling days have maybe went from 22 days now down to 15. So they're getting a lot more value per dollar spent. And they're also increasing the intensity of these wells. So the lateral lengths are becoming much, much longer than what they were just three or four years ago. For us, that's a big plus because that's more perforating guns, more explosives, more tools, more, more uh, switches. And that's where that intensity has really benefited hunting. Mm. Working capital is a big, big, big issue for a, 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 biz, a business like you or, or yours or not necessarily an issue, but a big consideration. Have you seen in the last year as oil prices have gone up and the, presumably the uh, uh, economics for the uh, your clients have improved, that the sort of standard metrics of working capital, sort of debtor days, turnovers is, is starting to starting to improve for us? As a company, our working capital number has increased just for the sheer fact that our business has increased. Right. So you're, we're going to have more inventory. We're going to have more receivables out there. And so it's been a positive. We just need to continue to manage that well. Our clients are still uh, – and it's, it's funny because some of our clients who are world leaders and have more money than anybody are the worst payers that we have in the business. But you, you work through those situations. You manage it appropriately, and you want to continue to have a relationship with them. So, again, yeah, working capital. Has, has grown, but so have the results to go along with that return. So just to return to a point you made at the top of the podcast, when you said you've sort of learned to live with the, the spikes in the industry, nonetheless, for investors, that's a very big consideration with oil and gas companies, but also, and perhaps even more so with oil and gas services, 
companies which are in some ways a leveraged proposition on oil and gas industry. I mean, in the last week, you know, understandably, we've we've had some uh, stories from OPEC talking about how while US Shell is going to dominate in the in the next few years, they are perhaps ready to turn the taps back on, um, take baby steps to unwinding some of the the cuts they've they've had in place for the last year and a half. Um, if if or if West Texas falls to sixty dollars a barrel, can you still expect double digit? growth is there still growth for core client or your 70 percent of your your client base as you were saying i think at 60 dollars a barrel that's a pretty good sweet spot for our clients i don't think they're they're not rolling in money but right. they're making good returns and one of the things people have to keep in mind is even today even, even though we had to ramp up into the 70 dollar level most of our clients, especially those operating in the Permian, were not getting that $70 a barrel. So they had a $10 a barrel, for example, constraint because of logistics. There's, If you've read in some of these shell plays, especially the Permian, pipeline capacity is full. They can't get it out. They're having to use rail or trucks. And so that's put a discount to that price. And on top of that, Many of the clients also were hedged in the $50 somewhat barrel range because of the uncertainty where was the price going to go. So I think very few of them had benefited today with that price. So I'm fa- fairly comfortable that even in a $60 barrel range that the, there will continue to be growth in the industry and will be do- doing very well. Is that the same for deep water and, and uh, offshore projects? The th- deep water, the higher the better, obviously, because the size of the project costs are just so, so expensive. And the planning, the thing with that is the planning takes a long time. The They call it the short cycle plays on shell. You could basically start and be starting to drill a well in 30 days. If you're going to drill a deep water well in the Gulf of Mexico or off of Angola, you need many, many, many months in order to plan that and work with the government and get all the approvals for that. The costs on deep water are continuing to come down as well. We recently secured some business in Guyana, and one of the operators down there that this is working with is with the Exxon and the Hess uh, drilling project for Lisa, which is down there. And the Hess management had a presentation and talked about that project and how it was more economical to drill those Guyana wells than what it was in the Permian Basin in the Delaware segment of that. Because literally, for what they could produce with eight wells, it would take them 1,400 wells to generate in the Permian Basin. So, yes, the costs are much, much higher in there, but offshore is still roughly a third of the world's production, and it's not going away. And I don't see major oil companies closing up shop and firing all their deep water staff. So I think, you know, it, again, it's stability is a key word. Gyrations are what makes it tough. And right now with a stable oil price, even in the $60 range, I think you're going to see the oil, the, the offshore segment rebound. Right. So, I mean, even if they don't, sh- you know, shutter their divisions, it's still, it's still highly selective, isn't it? I mean, to get to a final investment decision, they're looking for very, very low break-evens. They may have large portfolios of mm-hmm. projects they could execute, but you know they're picking only a handful how does that affect your offshore division well i mean the, for us the more offshore the better sure. so it's all it's a function of rig count and but right, how, you, right how are you doing now, at the moment yeah right now we, we're seeing it recover somewhat it's yeah. still a far far cry from where it was in 2014 but with talking with clients at least there's a lot more discussion on things happening if you look at people in the gulf of mexico since that's the market that i'm closest with you've seen last week shell had a new uh, big find in the gulf of mexico and as you mentioned um 
they're looking at how they can bring these on at lower cost, which means a lot of these can be tiebacks into existing infrastructure without having to go drill a comp- or set in place a completely new platform. And that's what this new find that Shell has, which will tie in, I believe, is to Appomattox. But I think those are what the clients are looking for first on satellites and things like that, whether it's the North Sea, Southeast Asia, Gulf of Mexico. And with that, there's that will still be a lot of spending. There's a lot of potential to do those type of things. But what again we're seeing more discussions on the on the positive side in places like Brazil and some others. The Gulf the uh Gulf of Mexico segment that Mexico controls, we've actually had an order there. So that now has some interest in the world with with players looking at it. So we're still bullish on offshore. This might not be the year you see a turn, but every every day that goes on is getting closer. Analysts often talk about cost inflation when they when they look at offshore. Is that the metric to measure it by, or is it just sheer volume that you would you'd prefer to get a lot more projects out there rather than looking to? Uh, you know, get an extra five percent on. Uh, oh, I'd contracts. like both. But like the both, whole thing course, is yeah. right. Right now, it's the volume that we need. It wasn't for for the products that hunting offers. It wasn't so much a pricing issue. It was just a lack of work. There yeah. just it just wasn't there at any price, and we just need the industry to get more buoyant and put more rigs to work. Excellent. Just turning penultimately to your your financials, you were a dividend payer previously. You obviously, given your debt position in the last few years, you've you, you had to cut that. Things have obviously turned. I mean, I've seen some commentary suggesting that you you should be moving into, uh, you know, quite a healthy net cash position mm-hmm. before before not too long. Do you do you return to the the you know the dividend list soon enough? Given that seems to be the business model that investors ask of all services companies. Yes, I have made it uh, very clear through all my discussions with our investors and the investment community that I want to get our dividend reinstated as soon as possible. And fortunately, we're taking the right steps to get there. I'm not promising anything today, but no, that would be my goal to move forward with that. I want to. I, to me, it's a sign of a healthy company when you can return something back to the shareholders and that's the one way that i want to start doing that just finally as well I and mean, we were talking before this about your career in the oil and gas industry and at, at hunting and at the top of the podcast you did talk about you know the obviously the strength of your uh, your core market at the moment and the strength of the oil and gas business in the years to come you know if you're going to look 20 years ahead and and for investors i suppose this is an important consideration because in some ways holding companies for the, the long term brings its benefits are you conf- are you confident about where the oil and gas industry looks it looks like it's heading in in, in 15 20 years does that keep you up at night or is it you know is is the industry only really fo- focused on the, uh, the the next decade no i think i think the industry is focused long term i have no concerns about the health of this industry over the next 15 to 20 years the world wants a growing middle class there's there's billions of people all over the world that want air conditioning cars they you know they want the same things that that the rest of the world has and it takes energy to do that or it takes plastics in order to make that happen i think that the the world will continue to move greener you're gonna you know the the le- the fact that we're going to have more electric cars and things like that is not going to go away. It shouldn't go away. We're going to have more windmills. We're going to have more um, solar. But the oil and gas segment, when you look at the sheer volume and demand that the world needs on this, just the treadmill that it runs on to keep things steady is an amazing machine that needs tons and tons of capital. So I'm very confident that this business is a, a, a great long-term place for any young person to be into and for any investor to be into. Excellent. We'll leave it there. Jim, thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. 
to listen to more audio from the IC, go to our website, search for us on Acast, iTunes, or wherever you normally get your podcasts. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 